Hello, and welcome back to Full Cup Professionals, a podcast for social service providers, helping professionals and caregivers. If you serve people, if you work with people, then this is a podcast for you. I am one of your hosts, Krista Mayfield. And I'm Faith Larson. And today we're going to talk about compassion fatigue and burnout. What are they? What do they feel like? How do we notice them and respond? And how can we heal and recover from them? In this episode, we really dive into our own experiences with compassion fatigue and talk through some really helpful solutions. We are so thankful that you're here, and we really hope this is an episode where you listen and go, oh man, that's exactly how I feel. I just could never put it into words. So let's go ahead and dive in. Welcome back. It's the Full Cut Professionals. Hello, hello. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? I am doing well, Faith. I'm very happy to hear you and see you. Yes. Good to see you too. It's been a minute. I know. Continue our conversation. Our first three episodes dropped. And so we are here with episode four. I know. know. So episode four, we're continuing this conversation on how we as social service providers can do our work in sustainable ways. And one of those things that I think you and I have found so helpful is by understanding what's going on in our mind, heart, and body so Mm. that we can navigate these waters well. Yes. So we're going to dive into some awesome stuff today. But before we do that, uh, you've got something in your cup there. What you drinking? Oh, yeah. So today I'm sporting my coffee because adulting is hard mug. Um, (laughs) A friend sent me this for my birthday one year, and it's one of my favorite coffee mugs. And so I'm just drinking some plain Jane coffee today out of one of my favorite mugs. Oh, I love that. Yeah. What do you got brewing in your cup over there? So I had some coffee and in my coffee, I put some ashwagandha, which is a root. It's an adaptogen. So it helps the body adapt to stress. And I will talk about ashwagandha and all kinds of adaptogens in a later episode because they have been a really, really helpful tool in helping my physiological response to stress. But ashwagandha is a great tool for that. And then I also had some heishu wu in there, which is a Chinese herb that helps with, they call it building up the blood, which just means like helping nutrients and all that good stuff get through your body. So that's what I have in my cup. I like to zhuzh up my coffee with some helpful things so that I'm not just like smacking my adrenal glands with caffeine. (laughs) Does that make your coffee taste different? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm interested to hear more about that when the time comes and maybe we can do a taste test sometime. That would actually be really fun. I yeah, would like I think that it a lot. would be fun too. Well, today we are diving into the topic of compassion fatigue and burnout. So we've talked about the stress response. We've talked about fight or flight. And we've talked about vicarious trauma and secondary stress where we can have a traumatic reaction from something that we just heard or witnessed. Mm-hmm. But today we're going to kind of be diving into something that I think is a little bit more across the board in terms of what we can experience. It's something that I feel like I have really experienced in my own life and understanding this has been drastically helpful in Mm. helping me, yeah, do this work well and keep going because not knowing this and experiencing compassion fatigue was Mm. really 
hurt. Isn't it so interesting how putting language to what we experience, how like cathartic and eye-opening that can be? It's so powerful. Yeah. Because I think what's happening is we're bringing something very real, but intangible. Mm-hmm. And we're making it, now Now it's tangible. Now I can put my hands to it. Now I can work with it. Now I can do something about it. Whereas mm. when we don't have language, it's existing and it's very much impacting us. But until we can name it and work with it, we have no control over it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 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 That makes me think about this book that I read. It's, it's actually a parenting book called The Whole Brain Child. So I read it as a mom trying to help my parenting skills. But one of the strategies that they give us is called name it to tame it. Mm. And like, that's what we're talking about is if we can name something, then we can take back control over it and we can tame it and we can desensitize ourselves to it. And so, yeah, I think that's so powerful. Yeah. And I think people listening today, um, you are a very special and treasured audience. Thank you for being on the other end. Thank you for being here. We don't see you, but we feel you and we're grateful that you're here. And I think that you guys are really going to listen to this and go, oh my gosh, I have experienced that. That is exactly what's happening to me. So let's start chatting about compassion fatigue and what this is all about. Okay, let's dive in. As I usually do with things like this, I do a quick Google search. And if you just do a quick Google search of the compassion fatigue definition, the first one that came up for me, it was WebMDs. And I I really liked it because I think it helped frame it in a helpful way. It said, it's a term that describes the physical, emotional, and psychological impact of helping others, often through experiences of stress or trauma. Compassion fatigue is often mistaken for burnout, which is a cumulative sense of fatigue or dissatisfaction. So we're going to talk about burnout, Mm. but we're going to first hit compassion fatigue. I think to understand compassion fatigue, we need to talk about compassion. So the word compassion, quite literally, if you break up come, passion, that means with suffering. So to have Mm. compassion or to be compassionate means to be with suffering. And as helping professionals, as service providers, our role is to be in it with people. Mm -hmm. We are present, right? Like that is our job is to be with you in your story. Mm -hmm. You are different from me. You are other than me, but I'm going to enter it in it with you. And I'm Mm going to walk with you through whatever you're going through, whether that's I work in domestic violence, I work in human trafficking, I work in law enforcement or as a nurse, you are suffering and I'm here with you. Yeah. I'm going to walk alongside you. Yes. And even though I can't experience it with you, I can be with you. I can witness it and I can be in the journey with you. Yes. Yeah. And I think you highlighted something that's helpful when we're looking at how we do this in a healthy way is saying like, I can't experience this for you or take this on for you, but I can Mm. be with you. But I will say that when I started this work and really as a child, I very much thought if I can just feel it, if I can just, that somehow I could take the emotional weight off of you, that I could minimize your suffering by suffering Mm. myself, that if I absorbed your suffering, then then you would suffer less. And so I didn't have that boundary to say, this isn't my experience, but I'm going to be with you. I just was like, oh, to be with you means I have to experience it as if it were me, that that's Mm. what compassion is. And it's not, but I will say that living that way absolutely contributed to my burnout because I didn't have those boundaries. I didn't know that 
I'm not making you suffer less by emotionally carrying this weight. I'm actually just making it worse. Well, and that actually makes a lot of sense why the term is called compassion fatigue. Because Mm -hmm. if we have that definition and if that's the way we view having compassion for the people that we work with, then that would make a whole lot of sense that we would fatigue out really easily or really fast. Because, you know, when you were talking about that, the first word that came up to my head is, oh, gosh, that's heavy to be carrying all of that for everybody all the time. No wonder you would get tired. Yeah. Yeah. And so figuring out how to be compassionate without feeling responsible to take on all of the suffering of everybody we work with can be so transformational. Absolutely. So I want to kind of dive into, again, circling back to this idea that we are with compassion. Because yes, Mm. if we have those boundaries and we understand, I don't have to absorb your suffering, that's going to make it way worse, way faster, like you said. But even just simply the action of being with or present with suffering has an impact on us as humans and on our brain and physiology. Because our brains, like we've discussed in these previous episodes, they're designed to keep us safe. Our brains are scanning our environment for harm, lack, disconnection. So when people are suffering because they're experiencing harm, lack, or disconnection, and we're with that, our brains are going, whoa, danger. <laughs> like we are in the presence of, yeah. of harm. We need to keep ourselves safe. Everybody has a capacity to suffer. We all mm-hmm. have a capacity for pain. And then we hit that threshold and our brains are like, nope, now we're in protection mode. Mm. But humans are the only species that can rise above our survival mechanisms. And compassion is this beautiful, beautiful place where we can say, I choose to be with this. This is painful. This is hard. This isn't even mine, but I choose to be present here. And as helping professionals, as people that chose these professions because we want to serve, that's Mm -hmm. what we're doing. We're saying, I'm going to rise above my desire, my innate desire for self-protection and self-preservation, and I'm going to show up in -hmm. these hard places. And oh, I love that about us. I love that about our profession, about these groups of people that have chosen to say yes to hard things. Mm -hmm. But we have to understand what's happening in our own minds and bodies. Yeah. And what came up for me just now, as you talked about that is like, yeah, I did make this conscious choice to become a helping professional. You know, when I was 22, I made this conscious choice, but I also had no idea when I made this choice, what all came with being in Mm. these professions, you know, like if someone had said, these are the things that you will see, and these are the things that you will sit with. And these are the horrible atrocities that you'll be exposed to. I'm not sure I would have made the same decision, or I probably would have made the same decision, but maybe I would have gone in it with more eyes open than I did when I was 22. And so I think for me, it's like, we do make this conscious choice to go into these professions, whether it's social work or law enforcement or teaching or nursing. And then we feel blindsided by like, oh, this was supposed to feel like I'm doing good, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't. It feels so, so, so bad. (laughs) And then we're like, what? Why? And so that's why this is so important for us to talk about because they can coexist. We can go, oh, I'm exposed to all these atrocities and all this trauma and all of this pain in the world. And also this job can feel so good and and rewarding. And like you said, the first episode, it doesn't have to feel like death. I don't have to feel like I'm suffering to do this job. Right. 
Right. That it comes with the territory, but it's not the definition of being a service provider. Yeah. And so understanding that our brain has this threshold, this tolerance for pain, and then it's going to start to protect itself. Mm -hmm. So compassion fatigue really is when you have poured out everything that's in your cup and now your cup is empty and Mm. you keep pouring or there's still a demand. So when you are in an environment where you have given all the compassion you have, you have met your threshold and the demand for compassion still exists. Mm -hmm. So for parents or for professionals in this space, right, we don't have the ability to go, oh, I'm done. I'm going to stop volunteering or I'm going to step back. Like this is our job or these are our children. Like we can't get away from it. Mm-hmm. And so that ratio of there's more need than your ability to meet that need, that is where compassion fatigue is. That's where mm-hmm. it lives, is where that need overrides or supersedes your ability to meet it with the compassion that you have. Yeah. But of course, as professionals or as parents, you keep showing up, right? You keep doing the thing. You keep being there for this person or these people or your clients because that's your job. But you will notice in that phase where that need has superseded your ability or your threshold and you keep showing up, you're going to notice how you show up is different. Mm. And one of the main symptoms is anger, irritability, or resentment. And it might not always be directly to the person you're serving. So if you're a social worker, you might not feel that resentment to your clients, but you're going to start seeing resentment and bitterness or irritability in other areas of your life, whether that's with your colleagues or your supervisor, whether that's with your partner at home, your children, your friends, and especially yourself. Yeah. Because what the brain is doing is it's going, whoa, (laughs) all these people keep demanding something of us. And if it keeps sucking this life out of us, this life force out of us, we're going to die. Like that's what your brain is telling your body. Mm. This now we're in danger of the life being sucked out of us. And anger is a protective emotion. Yeah. Anger comes up when there is something to protect. And so when we start to feel irritable or resentful or angry or bitter, what that can clue us in is going, oh, something about this is triggering my brain to say that we're in danger, that something needs to be protected here. Yeah. But what happens for those of us that are compassionate people or identify as helpers or givers is we feel that anger and then we internalize a judgment. Oh, God, why yes. am I so angry? I shouldn't be. I'm so selfish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're probably the least selfish person you know. <laughs> <laughs> you are not selfish, but we begin to internalize that judgment because we start to feel anger, irritability. Yeah. And what's happening is our brain is going, we're going to get sucked dry. We can't keep doing Mm -hmm. this. Yeah. And anger is really just trying to tell us, hey, something's wrong. It's trying to give us a warning. It is our internal mechanism to say, hey, we need to make a change. Right. And when we can listen to that without judgment, we can sidestep compassion fatigue. But yeah, when we internalize that to mean like, well, now I'm a horrible person, I'm a horrible mom, and I'm a horrible helping professional then it just exacerbates it. Yes, absolutely. When we work in environments where we are surrounded by people that need something from us, we have to be very, very aware that Mm. we have a threshold and at some point we're going to meet it. But so often, and I mean, this was so true for me, I just thought I wasn't allowed to have a threshold. 
Mm. And because I am a Christian and a believer and I grew up in this space that told me, oh, to be a Christian means that you you have the Holy Spirit and you have power. And I just thought, oh, that means I'm not supposed to have limit, that somehow wow. my belief means I'm supposed to be limitless. I'm not supposed to tap out of compassion. I'm not supposed to have a mm. threshold. And so then you hit that threshold and you keep going because that's what you're supposed to do. And then all of a sudden you're bitter and angry and you haven't smiled and you don't know how long. And you're like, am I doing this right? Like this doesn't, (laughs) this doesn't seem something's wrong here. Yeah. Something's off. Something's off. Yeah. I'm thinking about for an example of this for myself was during COVID. COVID was such a crazy time when, you know, I'm working from home. I'm a director of this nonprofit. We're on call 24 seven. The rules are changing every day. And we have no support system like living close to us and daycare's closed now. And so I'm trying to be the person running a 24-7 agency. And I have a four-year-old who also needs attention 24-7 at home with me. And I have a my partner is a first responder, so he was not around to no fault of his own. And I remember like having to tell myself, like being conscious of these thoughts that we're talking about and having to tell myself this is real life. Like my home with my son and my life with my family is real life. Like this is what is important. Work is not real life. This is real life. And I remember having to intentionally like remind myself about that daily of like the world is falling apart and I feel so much lack of capacity, so much strain in all of these directions that the last thing I want to do is give the fullness that I have to my son, you know, or to myself or to my family. And that at that point I had to be like, no, like this is real life. This is all that matters. That is what allowed me to continue to show up in the ways that were meaningful. Because your brain is doing triage, right? It's saying like, oh, what's the biggest, baddest threat in the room? That's what I need to pay attention to. Uh Well, as social service providers who often work in high trauma spaces, our biggest, baddest threats in our life are in our job mm-hmm. and in our clients' lives, right? Like the most life or death situations are in our workplace. That when we come home, we're like, oh, now I can breathe because all you need is dinner and someone to hug you and tell you that, ah, that'll be fine, right? Like to hug you when you're afraid of the dark. Again, our brain is doing triage going, what do I need to respond to? Because I only have so much capacity. Mm-hmm. So one of the biggest symptoms of compassion fatigue, one of the ways that you really know that you're experiencing it is that deep presence of irritability, anger, resentment. But the other thing that we do is numb, right? Because again, Mm. we only have so much capacity for suffering. We're suffering a lot. They're suffering all around us. So we just need to start, turn off those sensors, shut it down, shut it down. Mm -hmm. So we'll start to numb in different places. And so that could look like you might just notice, oh, I don't feel much of anything anymore. I don't really get happy. I don't really get sad. I just feel kind of flatline. Or you might notice some numbing behaviors, and that could be with substances, that could be, you know, coming home and drinking every night. Yeah. But that could be endlessly scrolling social media or always needing to have something playing in the background. You know, I can't brush my teeth without having a podcast on, like that kind of need for constant stimulation. If you do need to have a podcast on while you're brushing your teeth, (laughs) choose ours. (laughs) (laughs) 
We're not saying don't listen to podcasts. No, 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 no. But yes, we're saying like the need to have constant stimulation is a form of numbing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Behaviors and activities as well, like risk-taking, danger-seeking. Yeah, Mm -hmm. trying to find that adrenaline. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those can all be, again, just signs that your brain and body are going, we're taking on too much. And so either it begins to shut down or it looks for ways to boost those stress hormones, to boost that adrenaline in your system Mm -hmm. to meet the demand. It's either I want none of it or I need all of it. I need it all the time. But it doesn't want to come back to just normal because if we came back to normal, then we have to feel everything. Yes. Yeah. And that's heavy. That's heavy. And for a brain that's going, this is all too much. If we feel it all, we're going to die. Feeling it is the last thing your brain wants to do. And so if you notice those behaviors, start checking in with yourself, start asking, why am I doing this? Why am I eating so much? Or why haven't I eaten in days? Or why am I always skipping meals? Mm -hmm. Just asking those questions and really checking in and going, is there something that I'm avoiding feeling because my brain has told me it's going to overwhelm me? Yeah. My brain says, I don't have the ability to face this. So I just need to run. Yeah. You know, it's so funny that you said that. Like a couple of years ago, I started noticing that every time I'm like sit on the couch eating Oreos is a pretty big indicator of like something's not going very well. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> and so it's like I either I can do really well at, at eating balanced, you know, but when I get stressed, I stress eat. I'm still working on that. You know, I'm still in the part of noticing, like, oh oops, I just binged eat a bunch of Oreos. Maybe I should get curious about why. You know, I still haven't gotten to the point where I'm like, I want to binge those Oreos. Let me get curious then. But yeah, it's so interesting how it like it manifests so differently in so many different people. Right. And that's why for me, help knowing kind of the basics of what's happening can then help me lay that over these different scenarios and go, yeah. okay, my brain is saying that this is too much for me. And I'm either getting angry as a protective mechanism or I'm numbing or I'm avoiding. And then I can kind of piece things together. Mm-hmm. And so understanding that compassion fatigue is so real. And for those of us that work in social service or that your life is marked by helping being there for other people, this is a very real phenomenon that happens to all of us. And there's something we can do about it, which we're going to talk about later. But I want to talk about how it escalates, how it builds. Mm. If we don't address compassion fatigue, if we're not getting support, if we're not refilling our cup, then we will burn out. And sometimes compassion fatigue and burnout, like that WebMD definition said, can be conflated, but they are different things. And how I was trained, again, Dr. Dan Sarter, I'm a big fan. <laughs> if you ever get a chance to attend one of his trainings, please do. But he taught that there's kind of this stair step. So we can experience secondary stress. And then the step up from that would be compassion fatigue. And the step up from that would be burnout. Burnout is this cumulative effect where Mm. you've had secondary stress, you've had vicarious trauma, you have been sucked dry of your ability to show up for people in their suffering, and yet you keep showing up. And again, that window where the need has superseded your capacity to meet it, and yet you keep going, 
Yeah. That will lead to burnout the longer that you keep living in that space. And so burnout is really that cumulative effect. And where compassion fatigue, you can kind of have, we'll talk about this in a bit. You can have a moment where you kind of <gasps> get a breath in your lungs and you can fill your cup up and you can keep going. Burnout takes a longer time to recover from. Yeah. Those moments don't come. Because what's happened is that in that space where you were scraping the bottom of your own barrel, you've done some damage. There's been damage done. And so now it's not just, oh, we need to fill up our cups. We can keep going. It's we need to fill up our cup and then we need to heal the damage that's been done Mm. while we were scraping the bottom of our own barrel. It's called burn out for a reason because what happens when something burns, it gets used up. And then Mm. there's a chemical change. We all learned it in science class, right? Like (laughs) there's been a... I don't remember what science class this is. <laughs> is this chemistry, biology? I don't know. But something gets burned up, right? And then it's changed forms and it doesn't go back. That's burnout, right? There's some rebuilding that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And so we can kind of just unpack that experience for a little bit. And It's like you have to grow new skin. Like if you did mm-hmm. get burned, the process of healing from a burn is to let that burn be exposed and let new skin grow over it. And when we're in burnout, we can't go back to our old ways of doing things. We have to grow new ways. Yes. Oh, I love that. And let's keep running with that analogy because when we have an injury like a burn, we have to protect it, right? Yes. It's tender. It's vulnerable. It's in the process of healing and we want to shelter it from further trauma, which is why we bandage it. We wrap it up. We don't want to bump anything up against it. Mm -hmm. And you have to tend to it often. You know, you don't just bandage it that one time. You have to come back to it. You have to check the bandage. You have to change the bandage. It needs attention. And that is where people that work or that identify as a helper or a giver, that can be so hard because we don't want to give that attention to ourselves. Yeah. We only say that to everyone else. Yes. We will give it to everyone else, but we don't want to give it to ourselves. And when we have this need, we want to minimize it. We want to wrap it up and keep going and not let it slow us down. Because what does that mean for me if I have to slow down enough to take care of my own injury, my own pain? What does it mean for who I am as a person? Am I still loved? Am I still valuable? Am I still good? Am I still going to be accepted? Yeah, can I still help? I can't help if I have to be bandaging up myself all the time. Right. And and what does it mean for me if I can't help, if I can't give, if I can't show up for other people? And that is where you know, and that's where uh, it's this place, man, where healing happens. Because it's then when we've come face to face with our own motivations and we realize, oh, I've been showing up for other people because I'm scared that if I don't, X, Y, or Z bad thing is going to happen or it means something bad for me or about me. Yeah. That if I don't keep showing up for someone else, then I'm not going to be loved. I'm not good. I'm not going to be accepted. I'm going to be a burden. And then that means I'm going to be cast out or ostracized or whatever. And that's where those old childhood experiences come back. Again, trauma, an impact that leaves a dent, a negative experience where we internalized a belief and then we carried that belief with us. And 20 years later, we're working in a profession and we have no idea that It's that belief, that fear that's been fueling our work. And it's not until we fall apart. It's not until we have these moments where we go, 
I need to tend to myself, that we come face to face with these things. And these experiences, while so, so painful, are such a gift because if we didn't have these moments, we would keep operating out of that place. But the things that we do to survive are not the same things we do to thrive. Yeah. And so if I'm living in this survival place in my brain of going, I have to show up, I have to help, I have to give, I have to serve, I can't be selfish, I can't, you know, whatever, that's a stress response. That's my brain telling me there's something to be afraid of and I need to respond to that fear. But when we stop and we go, actually, I'm safe, I'm loved, I'm okay to stop and tend to myself and nothing bad is going to happen to me if... Mm-hmm. I step back and take a break. Then when you come back and you do serve, watch what happens. Watch yeah. how you feel. Watch the impact of your yes when your yes isn't an obligation. Man, mm-hmm. that changed my life when I realized I don't have to say yes to everything that I get to decide where I show up. Yeah, Because when I realized that, that it really was okay for me to decide to not show up, It meant that when I did decide to show up, I was there. You wanted to be there. I wanted to be there. That reminds me of what Brene Brown says in her book, The Gifts of Imperfection. It's the cornerstone of the book is she talks about, you know, the most compassionate people have the strictest boundaries because we're showing up out of a desire to show up, not out of a desire of resentment. And when we're showing up out of that resentment place, we're not actually showing up and hearing that and reading that for the first time was transformational because that's not something we are ever taught. We're taught if you're compassionate, you have no limits or you have no boundaries like you talked about, Mm -hmm. but actually it's the opposite. It's like in order to stay compassionate, in order to not have compassionate fatigue, you have to have boundaries. You have to have no's so that your yeses mean something. Yes. And yeah, we're going to talk more about boundaries next episode, I believe. But that's just what came up for me as you were talking about that. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Holistic Hope. Holistic Hope's mission is to foster hope by integrating a holistic approach to trauma-informed therapy and training. I am Faith Larson, licensed clinical social worker and owner of Holistic Hope. I am a certified clinical trauma and integrative mental health practitioner. Additionally, I am trained in evidence-based therapy modalities, eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing, commonly known as EMDR, and the revolutionary safe and sound protocol, which is based off of the polyvagal theory, and talk therapy motivational interviewing. If you are a helping professional needing a safe space to process all of the stressors of your job or wanting to enhance your knowledge and skills to work more effectively with your clients, Holistic Hope has a place for you. Contact me at faith at holistichope.net or by phone at 281-215-3716 for a free consultation. Or if you want to know all of the services that Holistic Hope provides, visit us at our website at holistichope.net. Yeah. Yeah. When I think about, okay, Krista, because I'm a vision person and for our sweet audience getting to know us, you're going to find out pretty quickly that I am like, I'm a vision girl all the way. And when I envision like, what is the future of social service? What is it that we want to see happen? 
oh, I want to see a army of professionals who know their own worth, mm. who know that yeah. their value on this planet is not defined by what they do for other people. It is innate. It is who they are. And we are just as much deserving of the love and help and support and compassion that we give. That we give to others. Yeah. And when we operate out of that freedom, the way that we are present with people is vastly different and is so healing. Yeah, it changes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is that, and I think this is why we make such a good pair, is that I am a direct practice girl. You know, Mm -hmm. I love Mm -hmm. the one-on-one interactions. You know, I've done the, you know, in social work terms, we call it like micro, macro, gosh, I'm failing social work one-on-one right here. There's a one in between, there's micro, and then there's something in the middle and there's macro. Email us if you're a social worker and and you can tell me about it. (laughs) Anyways, I've done them all and I have decided, I have come to terms with that. I'm a direct practice girl. I'm a micro girl. I like getting in the nitty gritty with one-on-one people. And my desire is that the individual person that's hearing this will go, that is what happened to me. And I can take this one tangible thing and I can start to make that change. And what is so interesting is that we can take both the micro approach and the macro approach that you're talking about, the vision, the long-term advocacy pieces of this and world-changing pieces of this, and they build on each other. It takes Mm -hmm. each individual person hearing this to make one change or to tell themselves one time, I'm worthy of this rest to get to that vision of a whole shift in the way that helping professionals work. Yes. Yes. First, it starts with us, right? You mm-hmm. and me. Yeah. We have to look at ourselves, and man, I... Oh gosh. <laughs> well, you therapied me before we started this video, right? Because I've had to do this for myself. Literally yesterday, I was on a walk and I was just feeling all the stress. And I remembered what we talked about in our last episode, how building a sense of safety in our body means responding to our environment. So Mm -hmm. I listened to the birds and I looked around and I took some deep breaths. Before we do anything else, we have to be people that go, where do I need to grow? Where do I need to heal? Yeah. And for those of us that work in the space or have been trained to look outward, that is not our initial question. We're always like, how can I help you? How can I serve you? Yeah. And we don't often go, I'm going to start with myself. The one place I really do have control over is is me. Me. Yeah. And you mentioned as we kind of shift into, okay, well, how do we, first of all, avoid burnout? How can we not get to that place where it becomes so desperate, where there's been a lot of damage done? And then if there has been damage, what does recovery look like? And you said before we started that you had heard this really great statement that has transformed your practice about intervention, not outcome. Can you share that with us? Yes, 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 yes. Okay, so I would say like a cornerstone moment in my career, you know, was probably about four years into my career. I'm still, you know, a very young 20-something, and I'm experiencing this. I'm experiencing the compassion fatigue. I'm experiencing the burnout. And I took this training for the first time called Motivational Interviewing. And the training transformed not only the way I work with people, but it transformed the way I view working with people. And I think that's why I have 
become so passionate about teaching motivational interviewing to other people is because it was so transformational for me. But the instructor said that as helping professionals, we are responsible for the interventions that we provide. We are not responsible for the outcome. And that was just like a light bulb moment for me. And something that I have continued to anchor myself in is if I can check in with myself and go, did I provide the best intervention possible? Did I show up for that client with an evidence-based intervention? Did I provide that to them? And did I give them a pathway to formulate that intervention for themselves? And if I can go, yes, I did that. Yes, I did that. Yes, I did that. I did my job. And I can say, I showed up today in the best way that I can. And I can go home and sleep at night knowing I did everything I was responsible for doing. Prior to that, I would concentrate on the outcomes and I would go, did that person change? Or at the time I was working in law enforcement. So it was more like, did that person complete probation or did I have to violate them on their probation? And if I'm only keeping score of the people that I'm quote unquote, fixing versus who I'm not fixing, the score was pretty bad. I wasn't fixing a lot of people, which I shouldn't have been because I can't fix people. What I can do is I can show up and I can provide an intervention that has been researched and proven to be effective, to be of value, and then say, hey, what you decide to do with this is up to you. And how you decide to leave this office or leave this agency or leave this home visit, that's up to you. What you take from this is your responsibility. It's not mine. I met my responsibility. I can go home and concentrate on what is actually real life, which is my family. And I can show up and do the same thing here. I can show up and go, oh, did I do everything I was supposed to do for my family today? Yes, I did. Check, check, check. Oh, did that equal the outcome that I wanted? No, because when you're raising kids, like, again, the scorecard never, (laughs) most of the time is not going to be in your favor. So I can let myself off the hook and go, I showed up to be the best mom that I could today because these were the things that I was actually responsible for. And the outcome is not. And it is such a freeing way to view the way that we work with people and really view life. It has transformed the way that I look at this work and the way that I show up for this work and the way that I show up for myself. And it's really something I've been able to anchor myself to is every time I, you know, notice myself in these places of burnout and compassion fatigue, I come back to this anchor of, oh, oops, I forgot. I'm not responsible for this outcome. I'm only responsible for showing up and doing the best job that I've been trained to do and to take that training and apply it in the best way possible. And so when I can stay anchored in that, my job is so enjoyable. And I love showing up every day. And I love going, hey, I'm awesome at my job. And it also is so funny because when you show up that way, I'm in a different type of setting now. You know, now that I'm in private practice, you know, people are are coming who actually are engaged in the process themselves. But I have clients tell me all the time, like, oh, I've seen all this transformation. It's all thanks to you. And in the past, I would be like, yeah, it was. But now I can generally go, no, it wasn't because of me. It was because of you. Like you did the work. You did it. I guided you. I maybe walked alongside you. I provided you some evidence-based interventions that I did not make up that I have just learned. And but you did the transformation. You're responsible for your outcome. And 
when I can authentically say that to a client and they can actually resonate with that and go, oh, yeah, I did do the work. That's when their change is going to be lasting. And that's when I can leave going, gosh, this job is amazing. And so that's my hope for everyone listening to this is that we can stop becoming outcome driven because that's where compassion fatigue and burnout lives. And we can start being intervention driven is did I do my job, which is to provide the social work intervention or to provide the case management or to provide the teaching instruction? And if the answer is yes, then I can go, man, I rock. Oh, Faith, all the claps, snaps, amens. <laughs> yes, yes, that's it. That's it. You're so right. Burnout and compassion fatigue live in that place where we are stressing about things that we actually have no, no control, control over. over. Yeah. And once we let go of that and we just go, what is truly in my hands? Then it is so empowering to go, I can put my best into this mm-hmm. and be confident of that and mm-hmm. come away being really proud of the work that I did. And the confidence, the self-esteem, the self-respect that comes from that place yeah. when you have really taken ownership of that is so powerful. Yeah. I'm just, I'm so grateful for that perspective. And I echo that hope for our audience that we become people that operate that way. Mm-hmm. Because that is a key factor in avoiding the pain that comes from burnout. And it's a key factor in the recovery. Because like we talked about, recovery from burnout means to heal, right? We got to grow new skin. We got to grow new ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. And if we're not going to keep traumatizing, right? If you think about trauma and like that physical sense of there being a blow, right? Mm. If we're not going to keep hurting ourselves, we have to find a new way of doing things. And this is a major part of that. Yeah. I think I might have even said this on this podcast before, but if I haven't, this is the first of many times. <laughs> Again, I was in a training by Dr. Dan Sarter, and he was talking about vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue. And he said this one sentence, and this one sentence is why I'm here today. And he said, the remedy for compassion fatigue is to receive compassion yourself. Mm. And when we think that it is our job to just be this never-ending, overflowing well of compassion. When we run dry, we tend to be like, just dig deeper, right? That's why we scrape the bottom of the barrel because we're like, I just keep digging down here. There's got to be more. Uh I can do it. I can muster it up. And there is no mustering compassion when it is gone. Yeah. Because we're called the full cup professionals, I love that we keep coming back to this cup. But what is so funny is that like my son right now, he's drinking out of straws and he'll do that like slurping where he's like, you know, and I look over at him and I'm like, dude, it's gone. Like there's nothing else there. Like, why are you slurping? (laughs) You know? And it's just like, to me, it's so obvious. Like there is nothing in your cup. (laughs) And he's just like, Oh, you know, like I might get one more ounce. And it's like, dude, would you like a refill or what, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, like, what would you like to do about your cup being gone instead Um, of just sitting here slurping in this like futile way? And what's so funny is that like, as a parent, that's so clear of like, what you're doing is not effective. It's causing a lot of noise and nothing is changing. But when we're doing it to ourselves, when we're slurping the bottom of the barrel of our emotional cups, we're not sitting there realizing that we're slurping air. Right. (laughs) We're thinking, oh, this can work. I might get that one more ounce. (laughs) Yes. 
<laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. And sometimes we need someone to go, hey, you're slurping air. What would you like to do about that? I love that phrase. What would you like to do about your cup being empty? Yes. Because it requires something. Yes. It's not just going to come out of thin air. But we think that. We think that, mm-hmm. oh, I'll get a second wind of compassion. It'll come back. No, it won't. No. The remedy for compassion fatigue is to receive. You have to have your cup filled, filled back up. Yeah. And so part of that is showing compassion for yourself. It is in those moments where you start to feel angry and bitter and resentful, not judging yourself or not bashing yourself, but saying, hey, you're at capacity. You've given a lot. I see the way that you've shown up for people and now you're tired. I see you, Mm -hmm. right? It's learning to be present with yourself and being with your own suffering and not coming at it from that judgmental place. And so that is key. And I will say that if people can show you all compassion all day, every day, if you don't believe that you deserve it, it's going to bounce right off the walls. So we have to have a level of an ability to receive compassion Mm. because someone giving us compassion is not the same as us receiving it. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be able to have that internal capacity to go, I deserve compassion. I see what I've been doing. I see the way that I've been showing up. I see the hurt that's here and mm-hmm. I'm I'm with it. But I will say, so many of us want to just fill up our own cup and not have to need anything from anyone else. And I just don't think it works that way. It doesn't. I think we have to be able to receive compassion from other people. We look people in the eye all day, every day, and we're with them in their suffering. Whether that's your client who has been trafficked or a patient who is in a lot of pain or a student who's struggling. Yes. Or you're with your friend and they got their Starbucks order wrong. Like Mm. we are with people suffering all the time and we're constantly meeting them there. If we don't allow people to see us in our own suffering and to meet us there, we're not going to be able to keep showing up. We will hit that threshold. And so in order to do that, part of it is just slowing down. It's recognizing, oh, I'm numbing. I'm trying to avoid. I'm running from this or I'm getting anger or bitter and just noticing, being aware of your own emotional response and then finding your safe people and letting them in. Mm. And whether that's a law enforcement officer coming home and saying, hey, honey, I had a really hard day and maybe you can't tell them everything. And I think for those of us, especially those of us that work in high trauma spaces or that work in an area of a lot of confidentiality, I did a podcast with CASA recently. They can't talk about things, right? A lot of us have a certain level of confidentiality we have to keep with our work. And so it feels like we can't share. And Mm -hmm. so because we have that barrier, we don't say anything at all. But we have to do something. We got to do something. And even if it's saying, hey, honey, this is what happened today. I can't tell you all the details, but here's how I feel. Mm -hmm. Here's how it made me feel. Here's what I'm feeling right now. And finding your safe people. Safe people are people that are going to be with you. They're Mm -hmm. not going to try to fix it. They're not going to try to wash over it or brush it off. They're going to be people that look you in the eye and go, man, that's really hard. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Maybe your partner isn't that person. Let them know that that's what you need. Hey, I'm going to tell you what happened today. I don't need you to fix it. I just really need someone to listen. Can you do that for me? Yeah. And then saying, hey, this is how I feel. And let them listen. Let them be with you in your suffering. And 
what will happen is that it'll be just that little bit of oxygen in your lungs. It'll be that little bit of liquid in your cup that goes, someone showed me compassion and it filled up my cup again. Yeah. You know, and I love that from the social work perspective, what's so great about our profession is that we have that built in. We have peer consultation, which is the whole point is that we are supposed to meet with our peers of social workers who are all in this together, who all have the same level of confidentiality. Even if you're doing micro or macro or the one in the middle that I can't remember, we all are experiencing the same thing. And we have this thing called peer consultation. We just have to utilize it. We have to come to the table and say, hey, I really need a peer consult today. I really need to talk about this heavy thing that happened today. Right. And allow our fellow colleagues to say, gosh, that sucks. Man, that was heavy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we're not going to do that if we feel that it is our responsibility to carry this weight or that if we can't carry it, it means we're weak mm-hmm. or I have to show up. I can't have my own needs. I don't deserve to have my own needs or pain. If we don't have that baseline of accepting and honoring our own humanity, then it's going to be hard to reach out. And so if you find yourself in a place where it's hard to reach out, where you don't want to ask for help, check in with that. Do you feel that you don't deserve help? Do you feel that you are not worthy of that ask or that your problems aren't big enough and other people have it harder and so you can't? Your pain is valid. Your suffering is valid. Even if your suffering is the suffering of other people. And that can feel hard, right? Because we're like, it's not their fault. I don't want them to feel guilty about it. Somehow we think that we're going to offend the person we're serving if their pain hurts us, right? But it does because suffering hurts and it's supposed to hurt. And as people that work in this space, the last thing we want to do is become numb and desensitized to the pain in our world. Yeah, It should move us. It should hurt. And we can heal and we can recover and we can be there for each other. But we have to believe that we receive that. On the flip side, I will say, if you work in a space where you don't feel safe enough to talk about what you're going through. If you feel like if I share what's happening, then people aren't going to believe me or they're going to question my work. Mm -hmm. Or if you just have the toxic positivity culture of everything's great all the time and we're blessed to do this job. Right, right, right. Then I would say, first of all, check in and say, is that really true? And do you have proof of that? Right? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes we're just afraid that that's what people are going to think and it keeps us from saying something. But if you're like, no, this is definitely like my supervisor is not the person I can tell, then go find your safe person. If you don't have that support system in your workplace, look for a safe person. And if that needs to be a therapist, then it needs to be a therapist. It needs to be someone who that is literally their job is to hold space for you. Then finding that person is so key. So I want to acknowledge that there is that level, right? Of not everyone is a safe person. And unfortunately, sometimes the people that should be a safe person are not. Yeah. But finding that. And again, if it's not there, what can you do to make it? Maybe it's a conversation, right? hey, I really need to talk about things, but I'm afraid that if I do, you're going to think that I'm not good at my job or that I don't want this job and that's not. Sometimes, unfortunately, we got to do some more legwork 
And that can be really hard when you're already burnt out, right? When you're already exhausted. And so again, you got to find what works for you, but you have the permission to do what works for you. Mm -hmm. And if that's to dive in and go there, then great. If that's to step back and walk away or find something else, then that's okay too. Yeah. You're allowed to leave a bad work environment. You are allowed to quit. Quitting is for winners. Mm. You know, and then kind of coming back to these safe people, I keep thinking like, yes, safe people can take all of our pain and our suffering and kind of be our vent person. But our safe person should also be someone that we feel like we can call and be like, oh my God, I had the best day today. And I am an awesome social worker. And I want to tell you about it because every day has the potential to suck, but today was awesome. And I know I can call you and not feel like judged for bragging on myself. I'm going to do a humble brag really quick about what's happening. And that is also safe. Yes. Yes. I love that. And we have to celebrate those wins, right? We have to acknowledge when things go well Mm -hmm. and train our brains to see that, train our brains to go. It's not all bad. It's not all danger, danger, danger everywhere. Mm -hmm. There is beauty. There is hope. I am powerful. I am effective. I can make a difference. I am doing my best and that's enough. The narrative that we tell ourselves and our brain is so important. And we'll probably talk a lot more about that. Yeah. I hope that you feel heard. I hope that something in this episode made you go, I'm not alone. I'm not crazy. I'm not a bad person. It's just my brain and my body and it's okay. Yeah. And I hope that we all actively work to find someone to have compassion for us Mm -hmm. that we practice receiving compassion. And if that is hard for you, if you feel that kindness, that compassion from someone else bounce off of you, like bounce off armor, that's okay. We all, we all got armor. We all got stuff. Just be gracious with yourself. Go, oh, it looks like I've got some walls there and get curious about it. It's okay. Mm-hmm. We're all trying to work through this. We all have a process and a journey, but acknowledging that is so important for us to show up in the way that we want to. Yeah. And feel free to reach out to us as well at Mm. hello at fullcupprofessionals.com. You can send us your humble brags. Yes. Tell us what's going good. And you can also tell us what's not going good out there. What totally sucks about your profession today. And then next week you can email us and tell us what was awesome about your profession today. We would love to hear both sides of that coin. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to end our episode today for here. We are going to talk about boundaries next time, which I'm so pumped for that conversation because we need them. Yes. We need them. Yes. So before we roll out, Faith, what are you going to do to fill up your emotional cup this week? Oh, you know, I've been reading this book and I am going to finish it. I'm going to set aside some time instead of trying to like grab 10 minutes here and 10 minutes there to read. I'm going to actually set aside some time. And I mean, the weather's been so nice. I might sit outside and listen to the birds like you keep talking about Mm. and finish my book. That sounds lovely. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I have been just not feeling my best lately. Mm. I feel like I've been busy. I have a lot, a lot going on right now. And transitions are hard for me. I feel like they're also getting harder. Yeah. As we get older. As I get older. And I tend to get really overwhelmed recently. And I've just been wanting to do some more internal work around that going, why do I get so emotional when things start to feel overwhelming? And I think I need to really carve out some space to be still 
Mm. I'm in a new season right now. A lot of things have shifted. And so I want to be intentional about what that looks like for me. And I think I'm going to need to be a little bit more disciplined. (laughs) I've had a a year of some rest and some space, and now that space is gone. And I have Mm. to figure out a new way of operating that's not chaotic. And I feel a little chaotic. And so I want to do that kind of less glamorous work of self-care where we kind of write down some boundaries and write down Mm. some schedules and some to-do lists and some rhythms. And I need that structure. It's not my favorite, but I need that structure in order to do this season well. And so that's what I'm going to do this week is make some time to be still, put some structure in place. Well, thanks for being vulnerable and telling us about that and allowing us to be here with you in that in your struggles. You're practicing what we're preaching right now. So thank you for doing that. And it's okay that things have changed and that's hard. And it's so great that you're noticing that and you're getting curious and going, "Hmm, why is that? I can't wait to hear next week about what comes up in your stillness and your curiosity. Thanks friend. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for listening. You can reach us at hello at fullcutprofessionals.com with topic suggestions, questions. Let us know who you are, where you work, what's going on. We want to meet you, want to get to know you. You can find me at good underscore sustain on Instagram. Good sustained is my business. And I would love to connect with you there. Talk through all things wellness, compassion, fatigue. How do we build stress resilience into our workplaces? So you can connect with me there. Faith, where can people find you? You can find me at holistic underscore hope underscore on Instagram. Uh, My website is holistichope.net. And I'm all about trauma-informed care training. I have one coming up on November 30th, where we dig more into the concepts that we have been just like discussing. I do motivational interviewing trainings. And yeah, so that's where you can find me. Awesome. Well, we will see you guys next time. Have a good one.